And living an intentional life is hard because it means reflecting on what you want, honoring your truth, and then bringing that truth in the world, even when the world around you may not support it or you don't completely understand. And you don't only have to do that one time. You have to do that your whole life. You have to do that all the time. And that's a very demanding existence. So imagine walking through life knowing who you are, but not feeling like you can live as that person. Well, that was how my guest today, Amara Jones, experienced pretty much the first half of her life before making a series of choices that would allow her to feel safe and supported, stepping back into her own life on her terms. Amara is the Emmy and Peabody award-winning founder of Translash Media, a cross-platform journalism, personal storytelling, and narrative project which produces content to shift the current culture of hostility towards transgender people in the U.S. As part of her work at Translash, she hosts the Webby-nominated Translash podcast with Amara Jones, as well as the investigative limited series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine. And in 2019, she chaired the first ever UN high-level meeting on gender diversity and was featured on the cover of Time magazine in 2020 as a part of its New Revolution special edition. She's held economic policy posts in the White House, communications positions at Viacom, and Amar's work as a host, on-air news analyst, contributor, and writer. It's been featured everywhere from The Guardian, The Nation, MSNBC, CNBC, <laughs> NPR, to The Mike and Color Lines, and, and really focuses on the full range of social justice and equity issues. And we explore Amar's experiences growing up in a family and a culture where revealing and living her truth felt not just uncomfortable, but unsafe. And also how that experience is so universal to so many and how she made choices that effectively empowered her to reclaim a sense of agency and identity and purpose. And we explore the power also of representation in media and stories and everyday life as a vehicle to open minds, conversation, and cultivate understanding, connection, and a sense of shared humanity we all long for, especially now. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As we dive in, you're in New York. It sounds like you've actually developed a love for both New York and Brazil and spent a fair amount of time traveling back and forth. Is that right? Yeah, I have. I'm curious where that starts to enter your life, the Brazilian side of things. It started in my first trip there in 2003, I think, on a lark. Uh, my friend called me one day at work and said, hey, I'm going to Brazil for vacation. Do you want to come along? And it was always one of the places that I wanted to visit. So I said, sure, not thinking anything particularly of it. And we went to both Rio and then to Salvador in the Northeast, Salvador being kind of the location of Afro-Brazil. As many people say, Salvador is the most African city outside of Africa, mm. which I think is true and resonant. And when I got there, it was like a place that I was missing and needed, but didn't know until I got there. And so then that just began this entire journey of going there. I don't know my, how many times I've been there. Luckily, I was able to get there in 2019, right before COVID. Hmm. Um, haven't been able to go back because of that. Um, but I've been there so many times. I've lived there off and on. One's in 2006, another in 2010. I studied Portuguese. I learned Portuguese. I speak it fluently. And it's just really one of those examples of having to follow kind of your heart and understanding, you know, when and where you're called to do things in your life and following that. And so that's what I did. And, you know, it began a incredible relationship that has gone on and will go on. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm always fascinated when, when we touch down into a location that you know we've never really thought about or been to before and there's something about it that just calls you mm -hmm. i sometimes feel like there's like this sense of almost homecoming almost like you've been there before I, mm -hmm. I, i've experienced that in different places i'm wondering if that was a part of what what you were feeling at all i mean i think it has to be right if you given the story and how much time i've been there and all that i think that yeah absolutely i think that that's absolutely the case yeah. And also, it's similar to New York in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Very different from where you grew up. So you grew up in the South, uh, Atlanta in the 80s, mm -hmm. in a very different culture. And you were also a kid who seemed like, the way I've heard you describe it is you felt like you were different. You tell a story when you were about 12 years old, leaving a house in a pink shirt and your stepdad's reaction mm -hmm. to it. Um, could you share a bit of that? Because it seems like that was a moment that is a bit of an anchor for you. Yeah. I mean, um, I just want to take a step back. I think in some ways, yes, they are very different, but then they aren't because, you know, Atlanta is a very 
black city, right? And and so I think it has that in common with with Salvador, where there is this pervasiveness of blackness that did feel very familiar to me, although a great many other things, as you say, were very different. So I just wanted to to name that that I think yeah that you know that's an important an important thing. Um, yeah, no, when I was between ten and twelve, yeah, no, I attempted to. I mean, I think I did leave the house with the pink shirt on, and yeah, my stepdad basically was like, "You you can't do this. Like, this is not something that people who are men whose society sees as men and boys, you know, kind of does. And it was both, it was a warning and it was a threat, right? In the way that it was done. Less the words and more the tone and the context. Yeah, and I think that that was, you know, it was meant to signal that you can't be who you are. I mean, I already knew that. I knew that I was a girl many years before this incident, but... I think that one of the things that I got from it was that any expression of femininity was a danger. And it personified, it was the personification, it was the manifestation of what I had known from a very young age, which is one of the reasons why I, like so many other trans people, um, suppressed ourselves. So I think that that was, it is emblematic of this larger phenomenon that had been at work for me since a very young age. Mm, Yeah, I know you write the, and I'm reading your words, the excessive standards that Black people are held to by the wider society means that nonconformity, any expression considered not the right way, is dismissed and erased. For me, this meant that I could not speak my truth and use my voice to tell the world who I was when I knew it. Like so many trans people, I grew up invisible. Mm Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's a lot of, you know, the feeling of erasure, the feeling of invisibility. I can't imagine carrying that around as an adult, equipped with, you know, different skills, different coping mechanisms, different relationships and resources. But as a young kid, to walk through life with that feeling had to be just incredibly heavy. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people learn to be invisible. I think a lot of people learn to conform at a very young age and do so out of a sense of fear. And that a lot of adults carry that around. I think it's more extreme if you're trans. But I think a lot of people end up doing that and not feeling that they can be free in themselves and their choices. Yeah, I think that that's not an un- – sadly, it's not an uncommon phenomenon. I think that a lot of people do that in a, different, in, in a series of different ways. And I think the burden for African Americans and the history of African people in this country and their descendants – makes that even more so because of that history and the need to conform. But yeah, I think the idea that like you can't express who you are and that you are invisible is indeed a heavy burden. I think transness is an extreme version of that, but I think a lot of people have that in their lives in a variety of ways driven by fear. Mm. I'm curious as a kid, how does that show up in your psyche? You know, r- rather than just focusing on any external manifestation, mm-hmm. how do you feel? Um, like as you're walking around as a kid, how does that manifest? You're pretending all the time. That's the easiest way to describe it. What's strange is how 
Um, I very distinctly remember feeling all the time that the world is interacting with you, not as who you are, but as they constantly perceive you. And so consequently, you know, you end up learning to perform all the time. You know, you're pantomiming what the world expects from you and they're interacting with like a projection of who you are, but not who you really are. And that's what you're doing all the time. And that's strange. And so then there's a even sort of greater inner part of yourself that, you know, that doesn't feel seen, that isn't seen. And that's maddening. And, you know, it's why there can be severe mental health issues for trans people. It's why that there can be these incredible rates of suicide. It's why there can be all these things going on because you actually never feel seen as a person and your humanity isn't able to break through and people aren't able to interact with you in the way that you know that you are. And so, as I say, I think you are, you're walking around and you're performing all the time. Mm, yeah. So it's like, even if the performative self is being accepted or finding some sense of belonging it's actually, it's the facade. It's the projection that's actually being- But it's not real. Yeah, you know, like em- embrace, right. But it's not you and you're always this other person behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Like, I, I got to imagine it's incredibly isolating. So even you could mm-hmm. be surrounded by people and family mm-hmm. and friends, but the the real you, you know, could feel just incredibly alone in that same place because it's it's not you that you're leading with. That's, that's exactly right. And I think that um, it's why that, you know, people can- struggle um, even into adulthood with the idea that people will really accept them for who they are, even after transition and all the rest of it. So I think that it's a very isolating way to grow up. It's quite strange. Mm. When you were a kid, what were the things that kept you from stepping into who you knew you were, you know, on on a level of, it sounds like part of it was fear. And I'm, I'm curious if that's true fear of what? Violence. I don't think that it was that that wasn't an imagination that was very real. It was very the threat of violence, either from within my own family and household or from my community was very real. I mean, I remember even growing up being perceived as like effeminate or gay. That was enough to invite, you know, threats of violence, actual incidents of violence. Uh, not to mention if people knew that you were a girl. And I mean, we have to underscore the fact that it wasn't until recently, and I mean like four or five years recently, that there began to be sort of mainstream figures of trans people that portray trans people as human beings. (laughs) It's a very recent thing. You know, it's fascinating if I, when I talk to trans people who are even like late, like 18, 19, 20, they talk about remembering growing up as a kid, right, just 10 years ago, and not feeling like they had any representation of themselves and how isolating that was and how terrible that was. So that's true even for people who are in their teens right now, right? So I think that that's an important thing for us to keep in mind is that this relative association with trans people with things other than violence other than mental illness, other than marginalization, is incredibly new. And so you take those three factors, right? There's the threat of violence within your family and household. There's a threat of violence within your community. And then there is the violence and erasure in the larger 
world. And so I believe that my fears were grounded in kind of a rational assessment of the reality. Yeah. I, I mean, it's literally, it's, you know, in, in no small part about um, staying alive. <laughs> it's about That's saying, exactly right. like, I, I need to be safe, you know, like, the, yes, exactly there's right. concerns about potential. What are the social concerns here? What are the family concerns? Like, what are the, but, but literally like fearing for your own ability to just, you know, like wake up the next morning um, with a pulse. What a, a horrendous thing to have in your head at any age in life, but especially as a young kid walking around and having that sensation that you're, um, you can't show up as who you know yourself to be because of fear of um, direct violence. Um, one of the things that occurred to me is um, the word trans came up a number of times. Um, and the folks who listen to this podcast is really interesting because it's really a multi-generational audience and a global community. And we will have folks who are in their late teens who probably have a, a very interesting, their understanding of both what the language and what being trans is. And we may have folks listening in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who have either a, a complete unfamiliarity with the word trans or what being trans is, or maybe some sort of distorted or very old or set of assumptions. And I thought it might be helpful for, for us to actually just kind of unpack what do we, when we use the word trans and when we talk about being trans, if we could dive into that a little bit and actually describe how we're using that language. So we're sort of all on the same page. Yeah, of course. I think language is incredibly important. And, um, you know, there are lots of ways in which the emergence of new language is being weaponized. But, you know, English is always in motion and we should always be really clear about what we mean. So I'm um, excited to have this particular conversation. So the word trans is short for transgender. And that means transgender, the word trans in Greek is about moving from one thing to another. And so trans people are people who move from being the gender that we were assigned at birth to the gender that we actually are. Being trans and being transgender is a recognized condition, in quotes. It is why there are medical interventions that work for trans people, that when they are applied to us, that help us be the gender that we actually are, that our life chances improve, our life expectancy extends, and we become whole people. And those interventions can include nothing, uh, but they can also include things such as hormones and surgery that help people be the gender that we actually are. And so one of the things that I was talking about last time is that I always knew that I was a girl, but I couldn't express that. And for people who struggle to relate to what that's like or if that's real, given our society and the fact that the very first thing that you learn beyond race, probably beyond geography, i.e. where you lived or where you grew up, is the division between girls and boys, in quotes. And for someone to know that their truth is totally different from that very fundamental orientation that we have. That truth has to be real because the learning 
around this is so strong. And I think as far as we know, and as far as there is human history that's been recorded, and I mean even on cave walls, we know trans people have existed in human society. We're actually not new. What's new is the idea of the binary, which arose around the need to classify people in very specific ways in the um, 18th and the 19th centuries, in particular in Western culture. Mm. Uh, we know that trans people exist in indigenous cultures in the United States, in Africa, in the Pacific, on and on and on. So we're not actually new. What's new is that we were deemed to uh, not be useful, to not be normal with the standardization of human classification within a Western sense for the past several hundred years. And so what's actually happening is just a reassertion of human history. What we are able to do is to assert that there are people whom we know throughout human history are born in the wrong bodies. My brain is that of a woman and a girl and always has been. My body, the way my body unfolded, was not congruent with that. And all we're doing is making those things line up and match. Mm. And that's not a new thing. The medical intervention is new, but the sentiment and the reality of our existence is not new. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to underscore. And just one other thing about language for people who are like, what's cisgendered? If you are a person not familiar with that term of any age, Cisgendered means a person who does not move. You, you, you stay in the same place. You are not in motion. So therefore, the gender that you were assigned at birth when someone put girl or boy on your birth certificate, your unfolding, your life, your mind, your body, we're all in agreement with that. And so cisgender people don't have that same experience as transgender people and never have for as long as humans have been human. Mm. it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So, listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute, that's actually me. 
That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere rid beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Was there something that happened? Was there something cultural, political that happens in the 1800s to, you know, like that leads to this shift to this or like rush to binary labeling that, that largely didn't exist before that. Mm -hmm. I mean, ironically, it's a part of the enlightenment of deciding who's human and who's not. I mean, that was, that's the dark side of the enlightenment that we don't talk about. The enlightenment, of course, being the end of medieval superstition and the growth of the belief in human rationality to, put it in very uh, truncated terms. And a part of that is deciding who's human and who's not. And so a part of that system is about classification. It's about reproduction. It's very concerned about reproduction. It's concerned about class and it's concerned about race. And so therefore it's the development of these very specific hierarchies that were then also tied to systems of oppression like slavery, like capitalism. It's around the same time that we have the division between women and ladies, right, in quotes, that ladies in society, people, women who behave a certain way are attached to a certain class structure, received protections than people who were just designated as women or female, right? It's around this same obsession time, this classification, So all of those things were working together to reinforce systems of economy, of dominance, of colonialism. And it's why some of the very 
the earliest systems of classification of who's human, who's not, are very much grounded in race and racial ideology as well. So it all is tied together in in a project that's not so great. Mm. I'm deliberately being facetious there. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's important is that there are lots of people that explore this. One person who does this um, on Instagram very easily and very accessibly is a person called Alok, who has a lot of material about the development of gender, the development of gender tied to specific clothing. There are all these things that are tied into this project of classification and reclassification and deeming people as being inside or outside of structures. It also has to do, quite frankly, with the proliferation of Christianity, whereby indigenous cultures and religions had representations of people who were trans or had representations of people who were intersex, totally different, but and had cultural space for those things and we and Christianity doesn't and Western culture doesn't. And it's very interesting to me to think about the ways in which Western culture is actually a primitive culture in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to think of it as being very sophisticated. But when it comes to encompassing humanity and our complexity and allowing for cultural space for all different types of people to exist with true equality, it's actually quite primitive and has a long way to go. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because it it feels in an interesting way that Western traditions, Western culture, very often Western-based faith traditions, will take on the positioning of expansiveness, but the dogma of reductionist, reductiveness. It's sort of like, let's distill things down to the the, the most discrete possible things, and then there's an in and an out, a good and a bad, you know, an acceptable and an unacceptable. And I think sometimes we think about it, well, that's just the way that it's always been. But in fact, as you're sharing, when you look back through history, this is actually a relatively recent phenomenon and a harmful one in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what's really interesting. We like to think of these things as permanent and then somehow that we are new, but we're not actually new. The exclusion of us from humanity is what's actually new and tracks with a very specific time in history. And I don't think people know that enough. And it's because, you know, the classification of strict man and strict woman is very, as I say, it's the er- one of the earliest divisions we learned before anything else. It's one of the organizing principles of the world. And when something seems so fundamental, when it's something that you grasped, maybe even before you spoke, but definitely not long thereafter, as a way to divide humanity, you know, that's something that's very, very hard for people to not believe is true because they believed it as true for such a long time. And they didn't grow up in a culture which said, no, there are actually multiple genders and there are actually multiple types of bodies and there are multiple ways that people can be. And because we don't have cultural space for people in that way that is endemic to our culture, we actually end up with very, very narrow pathways for humanity that that are not good for us, that are not healthy. Because, you know, nature is expansive. Nature creates. Nature is always trying something new. Nature is always about not sticking to things in a very specific way. And we try to say somehow that we're not a part of nature and that we don't do that when when we are. And trans people are a part of that tradition. And we'll be much better off when we're able to embrace everyone. Yeah. And, and I think that distinction that you made also about like 
this is not a choice where we decide that we, quote, are something different or want to be something different once we reach a certain part of life. This is more, this is an acknowledgement that this is actually who we've been, you know, from the moment that we hit this planet, but we were not in a position of agency and power where we actually got to choose sort of like the label that was placed upon us back then. So this isn't a reassignment. This isn't, I'm choosing to be something different or I am something different. This is, this is who I've always been. And it is almost a reclamation of the language of the identity and just saying, okay, so this is, this is me. And I've heard conversations where people are saying, well, you know, this is, it's a change you're making later, or it's a preference, that word preference. I've heard, um, and I, I would imagine that you have had a conversation around that as well any number of times. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is the only preference that I've exercised is to be true to myself. That's the only thing that I've done. I haven't done anything else than that. I haven't chosen to not be who I am. That's so strange. Um, who would go through everything that you know I've had to go through and that trans people have to go through as a preference, you know? And I think people use that as a way to not try to take us seriously because they have to actually take themselves seriously and their own choices. And honestly, most people don't make intentional choices in life. They make the choices that they think they're supposed to make. And the fact that trans people exist and we've had to make very intentional choices, I think is very intimidating. So in order to not have to do that work, it's just easy to say, oh, yeah, that's just a preference. Because if you dismiss it that way, you don't have to actually consider that we're real and then look at us and then think about your own life. Mm. The other thing that I've heard... um in conversation. Um, and I've actually heard this among parents of kids who are probably like the early teens ish, some variation of the phrase, Oh, they're too young to know. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it's interesting because when I've heard that, I almost want to reflect back to the parent. Were you too young to know? <laughs> you know, like, why does that not apply to you? But it applies to this other person who's making a choice that you don't understand. It's an interesting gut check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, First of all, if it wasn't real, it wouldn't have stuck with me all my life. (laughs) Right? Like things that are false don't persist. So that's one of the ways that I would answer that. I think the second way that I would say is knowing early is actually a pure form of knowledge because it's actually not, it's not infected by Mm. all of the other things. Yeah. And thirdly, you know, there are people who know they're trans, try to live their life as cis people, do live their life as cis people, and then realize that it doesn't work for them. And then in their 70s or 80s, be like, I'm going to transition because I don't want to continue to live my life as a lie, even at this late stage. So is it that they don't know? They've been around for seven or eight decades on the planet. They don't know themselves well enough. What they learned about themselves early on and tried to deny through marriage and through children and through grandchildren, they don't know. I just think that when people say things like that, they just haven't thought a lot about it, you know? And I try to have empathy for that because 
You know, the title of this, of course, is The Good Life Project. And a part of living a good life is having to be intentional. Mm. And living an intentional life is hard. Because it means reflecting on what you want, honoring your truth, and then bringing that truth in the world, even when the world around you may not support it or you don't completely understand. And you don't only have to do that one time. You have to do that your whole life. Mm. You have to do that all the time. And that's a very demanding existence. And so it's easier for people to live an unconscious life and to tune it out and to go through the motions and to not make a fuss because it's just easier in the short term, right? The, di- the, the days are easier, but the years end up being long. Mm, yeah. And seeing people coming across people who have to live intentional lives with intentionality that can be very, very frightening and very intimidating. And so it's just easier to find ways to dismiss, to deny, to erase, to silence, to even oppress than it is to face yourself and what you've done and why you've done it. And to maybe be faced with the choice that everything that you've done to a certain point, you haven't really wanted to do. And then what do you do? Those are all big questions. And I think that's a part of the dismissiveness and the dismissal of us. Mm. You mentioned part of it is, is dealing with fear. Part of it is dealing with um, a lack of knowing. Part of it is dealing with your own ignorance and assumptions to a certain extent. And earlier in our conversation, we talked about the threat of violence. And I guess what I'm trying to do is bridge the gap here. The f- Fear leads to violence. Mm-hmm. What is the fear? The violence that trans people are so often and routinely exposed to. What I'm always trying to think about is where is that actually coming from? What is the genesis of that? Is it societal overlays? Is it assumptions? Is it misinterpretations? Is it the media? Is it, And I know this is where so much of your your work, uh, you know, like in, in your career and your field has emerged into. Mm-hmm. But how do these misperceptions become fear that then becomes things like rage or hatred or violence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, ignorance is a great place for fear to start, like uh-huh. lack of knowing something. Um, you know, lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding is the basis of human fear. And I think that that starts very early in our evolution. Kind of the unknown place in the landscape in the African savannas or the unknown the thing that's unknown can be scary because there can be something there that lurks, that's, that's lurking that's going to eat you or that's going to chase you. Or, you know, there are lots of different reasons why the unknown can be frightening for human beings. And therefore, we get addicted to the known, like the known place, the known path, the known, you know, it just feels safer. And I think in some ways we're conditioned in that regard because of our evolution. It's so funny, our evolution has so many different strands, but this is one of them. There's also part of our evolution that's about exploration, right? So that's mm. we're human human beings are extremely complex animals. I think indeed, um, <laughs> very, very complex. I, you know, I wouldn't if there are aliens out there and they try to understand <laughs> us. Good luck. 
good luck with that. Maybe that's why we haven't had the alien invasion because it's we're just too vexing. Right. They're like, I, I just can't deal with this. I'm working. I can't like, deal with that. I understand. It's going to be right. too much. I, whatever. Keep going. What's next planet? So that's one thing. I think that ignorance is, is, is a part of it. Our lack of knowledge is tied to fear um, in our brains, I think. And then a huge part of our society is about othering other people to your benefit. You know, we do live in a society which is stratified along systems of classification, along race, along gender, along education, along, you know, a whole host of things. We live in stratified societies, and part of stratification is the othering. And I am, so you are not, therefore I have, is kind of the formulation And so in that, there's not a lot of space and flexibility. This is why I was saying how a lot of this is tied to the Enlightenment and classifications Mm -hmm. about who's human and who's not, who's deserving, who's not, et cetera. That I think that that's a part of our society. We do it all the time. So why wouldn't we do that on trans issues? I mean, if you look at the idea of who gets to kill people in this country and who doesn't, stratified, you know, some people get to and some people don't in terms of the law, I mean, effectively in terms of the law, who gets to violate other people's bodies and who doesn't. I mean, there are all of these ways in which we have this stratification and this othering that's a part of our society. So, of course, on on some level, that's going to also be tied to gender and gender identity because it's tied to everything else. So we live in an othering society. I mean, a lot of things that we're talking about are things that we don't like to face in our society, in our country, but they're kind of the undercurrent that block progress. And I think it's time for us to face them. So that othering allows for certain people to be entitled, to have privilege, to advance. And so these things are all bound up together. Mm. When we think about, okay, so, so, now what? Like, where do we go from here? You know, so I look at the choices that you made. I look at, you know, part of your journey or story. You, you eventually leave Atlanta. You come up to New York. You end up in Columbia mm-hmm. and then London School of Economics, studying e-com, and then spend a window of time in policy and then in corporate America, in media. Mm-hmm. So when you made the decision to, to leave, to come to New York, it sounds like that wasn't just a decision to say, okay, I'm going to school. Um, it was a decision in part to remove yourself from a world, from a culture, um, and step into another place where maybe you felt uh, there was a greater opportunity for you to actually live as who you were and build your life and your living and your career and your contribution differently. I'm wondering if that was part of the transition for you into living more as who you were and then eventually building a career around that. That's absolutely right. I don't think I thought of it at the time in that way, but that's absolutely right. It really set me on my path, leaving Atlanta, leaving the South, coming to New York, really set me on the path for a continuing unfolding of who I am. It would not have been possible without that. And I I think that's one of the reasons why my my mother fought it. I think that she knew Mm. on some level she really, really, really fought me coming to New York and for coming to Columbia. And um, I think 
that's the reason why, because it really did. Leaving Atlanta at 18 to come to college um, in New York City at Columbia was probably the most consequential decision I've ever made because it was, it led to so many of the others. Mm. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I know um, you shared how the, in the early days it was not the easiest relationship with your mom. Mm. Your mom eventually um, had cancer and passed, and it mm -hmm. sounds like there was some reconciliation. Um, did she know you, and, and to, did she come to accept you sort of like yeah. as a trans person? No. Um, I think what's wild, though, is... I mean, at the very, 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 very end. But I mean, that I mean, we're talking the final days, right, mm -hmm. of her of her life. But I want to say that a fascinating thing is that our relationships with people, particularly our parents, and then I think especially our mothers, don't end just because they pass. Those relationships don't stop. We still have relationships with them. You know, if people are energy, the energy isn't gone. The relationships aren't gone. It's just the, the, the physicality and the presence are not there in that way. And I really feel that our relationship has continued to evolve. Mm. And I really do believe and know that my mother does know me and does accept me and does love me and sees me in my fullness. I really know that. And, you know, there are things that can become clearer in death, strangely enough, than in life. 
things I can tell me more. Well, you are removed from the TikTok of your interactions. You know, every interaction gets into a dynamic. And so you're not in that dynamic anymore, right? Because they're not here. And so, therefore, you know, you get to see kind of the underpinnings of, of your relationship. And that's from our perspective. And then I, I really do believe, as I said, that our relationships still persist. That if it is true that we are energy and no new energy is destroyed or created, it's a very, you know, essential rule in physics, that therefore in death, you know, there's also a continued understanding and growth that continues to happen in their energetic presence. And those two things are happening at the same time. And so, you know, as I say, I do believe that my mom sees me and knows me and loves me and, you know, is fundamentally proud of who I am and believes in me and what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, and, and so much to believe in and also to see and to be proud of. You've, over a period of, of decades now, like you've, you've been in the White House in policy positions, worked at Viacom, done incredible things with the No HIV AIDS campaign, MEP buddy, journalist on air, all the things, like tremendous media impact, but in a very purpose-led way. And you made this really interesting decision in 2018 to create this docu-series, mm-hmm. Translash, which, which eventually becomes something much bigger. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm curious when you're thinking about the initial project, um, which is heading back to Georgia and really sort of like mm-hmm. taking this, this journey mm-hmm. back into your life. Mm-hmm. What led you to say, like, this is what I want to do, and now is the time to do it? People that I've worked with and trusted mm. sort of forced me to do it. <laughs> mm. that's, actually, that's actually the truth. Because so much of storytelling, and specifically when you're in journalism, you know, we're very focused on other people's journeys and stories. And then to center ourselves is a very odd thing. Or should be. I mean, not everyone. I mean, there are some journalists that we can think of, but I mean, for most (laughs) people, right? Like it's not, you don't center yourself in the story. You're very concerned about other people's story and what's going on in this, that, and the third. So then to put yourself, for me to put myself at the center of the story was very uncomfortable and sometimes still is uncomfortable. And so I had to be convinced to do it. And I'm glad that I was, you know, a part of growing and being open is not only listening to ourselves, but knowing when to listen to other people. We don't listen to other people all the time, but, you know, there are times when you should, when you're actually wrong about what you're doing and the choices that you're making and what you're thinking. You're not doing the right thing. And my friends and my colleagues were right. And so that's why I ended up doing it, because I knew when to listen. Hmm. You end up going back to Georgia, going out to parts of your family, which were... um outside of Atlanta, um, part of the story. Um, way outside. Way outside, right? <laughs> and you you end up with um, someone named Mama Rose, who I guess, was it your your mom's aunt or your great aunt? Or, mom's, yeah. Right. And kind of saying like, well, t- tell me about, you know, <laughs> tell me about my past. Tell me about my mom's past. Tell me about like what was going on, trying to get a sense for all of this. And, and at some point end up speaking to your 14-year-old, I guess would have been niece- they are effectively my nieces. They're actually my okay. cousin. But I mean, in 
our relationship and functionally they are my nieces. Yeah. I still think they're my babies, even though they're <laughs> That's um, awesome. 17, 18, and 16 now. Ah, I love that. Um, and there's this, this interesting moment, right? Where, where at 14, you know, like she's, and you're trying to get a beat on like, what's her take on you? She's like, you are a beautiful creature just as God has made you, which is really interesting because you wouldn't necessarily expect that based on sort of like cultural lore about how somebody of like a certain set of beliefs in a certain part of the world, in a certain part of the country, in a certain part of a state would view a trans person. And yet here you have this, this kid looking at you and saying, yeah, totally cool. Um, which really, it broke so many of the narratives and I'm, I'm wondering how that sort of whole, whole experience and moment landed with you. Yeah. I mean, it was really powerful because, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. Mama Rose was at the er very early stages of Alzheimer's. She has since left us last year. Mm. Um, and we didn't know what we were going to interview her. And then at some point she, she says, I, I want to talk. And so then she just did. And like thousands and thousands and thousands of people instantly fell in love with her. Like mm. she's by far the most popular person in that, um, in that documentary. And I think for all of them, I think for someone who is in their nineties, who went to church every Sunday of their life until they got too ill to do so in the last year of their life, who was very active, who was, you know, extremely religious. And for that person to say, I know who you are and I love you and I don't judge you and that's not what we're here to do made me think that if she can be pro-trans, if she can embrace trans people, then what's your excuse? Like there's no other... You know, she lives in Southwest Georgia, not far from where Jimmy Carter grew up and is African-American, you know, in her 10th decades of life, extremely religious, as I say, and would call me by appropriate pronouns. So if that's the case, what literally is everyone else's excuse? There is none. And it also means that there's wide possibility for us to be able to have rights and understanding. Mm. That was also the other thing yeah. that I got from that. That the portrayal of things being hopeless and narrow in certain places and open and expansive in others is kind of a myth. And that what we have to do is to talk to people as human beings. Everybody understands a, hu a human story. And everybody can relate to that. So let's talk to people in human terms about our humanity and let's see how far that gets us. And then my cousins, I mean, they're, they're amazing. Um, I was really shocked. You know, I think that teenagers think more about gender than almost anyone because they're coming into their gender. Mm, yeah, and one of sense. the things I really realized about my cousins and seeing them is how they tried on different parts of their gender all the time. They were figuring out what kind of girl they were to be, what kind of woman they were. And sometimes they would be without makeup, sometimes with long wigs, sometimes lots of makeup, sometimes, you know, like they were really trying out what was right for them. And I think in trying out what's right for them and figuring out what resonates, 
what is ap- actually happening is what people forget, which is that there's a large part of your gender that's learned. There's a large part of your gender that is not natural. You are trying on different identities until you say, oh, okay, this is what type of woman I am, or this is what type of man I am, or this is what you're, it's all a, it's, it's not, there's not a set thing to it. And it's not all biological. Large part of it is learned. There's nothing natural about knowing how to do makeup. For example, you gotta learn that. (laughs) There's nothing, Mm -hmm. there's nothing natural about that at all. And so many other things that we could point to. And because they're in that gender conversation in their head, they actually have really deeply intelligent things to say about gender in our society because they spend so much time thinking about it and so much time observing other people. And therefore, they have some of the most interesting things to say about gender that I've ever encountered. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It feels like the conversation, it is a very generational thing. Is it, is it generational or is it that we're all sort of much more open when we're a lot younger, we're all trying on a lot of different things. And then we sort of like fall into a structure because that's what society tells us is the appropriate way to be. But now the sort of like the, the rising generation, especially is just the structural assumptions, the things that said, okay, so you're X or Y, like you're male or female, and this is the way it is. For the youngest, the emerging generation right now, I feel like so much of that has just blown up and like they're just not making those assumptions from the earliest days and they're stepping into just their own experience with more freedom. And I, of course, I can't say that universally for every single person, but I feel this sense of emergence around that exploration, that freedom to just say like, who actually am I? when I get to choose, when I get to feel, when I get to step into and explore my life in a way that I feel like older generations, they didn't ask the question because they didn't know it was, it was available to them. They didn't examine the assumptions because they didn't know that there was a freedom to examine them and to actually own whatever they, the felt answer was rather than the assigned answer by someone outside of them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I don't think that it's a natural thing to naturally question when you're younger. There's lots of generations that didn't question anything when they were teenagers or in their 20s. So it's not a natural thing. It is a cultural thing. And there is more cultural possibility. You know, for example, baby boomers questioned authority because so many of them had parents whose dreams opened up around World War II, but were dashed. They had deep frustrations in them. And therefore, they taught their children to not necessarily believe that women couldn't do things, for example. You know, you think about the number of women that worked and were in the war and flew planes and built things and ran things. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've done that for five years and men come back and you're shoved back into these roles. And there's this heavy public almost indoctrination program in the 1950s to get women to basically forget the 1940s, Mm. like forget that all that stuff happened. And people were quietly saying different things to their daughters. And the same thing is true for African-Americans who did all those things and then came back to a segregated country. And many of those people raised their black children to believe that they could live in a world where they would be free. And so then their children were different. This is what I mean, these cultural openings. 
And I also think that the same is true now. I really do believe that it's funny. Millennials are a combination. They're the children of lots of different generations, not just one. So some of them are the children of late baby boomers. Some of them are children of Gen Z. Some of them are children of early millennials. It's kind of an interesting group, but their parents raised them as well to believe in themselves and to think differently and to question things. And so they are, and we have this space in this moment and I do believe that they are more open. They also face a world that can be really hostile to them. And for as many of them that are open and questioning, like my cousins, there are, you know, I hate to say it, people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who's very much, you know, of Gen Z, 16 years old, smack dab in the middle of it. So I think we can't get too ahead of ourselves in thinking that the entire generation is a certain way. But I think that your framing and the leanings of Gen Z are exactly accurate. And it's because in part their parents helped to create these cultural moments for them. Yeah. I think it's really, I I do agree with everything. And I, and I do feel like we are, we are in this moment. I think there's a window here. So it's interesting to see how you've, you know, when I look at what you actually, you started in 2018, which starts as this docu-series, like as Translash. And now now you're really, it, it's emerged into something much bigger. Like now this is, mm-hmm. this is a policy uh, organization. This is a media company. This is, this is a, a storytelling and production like movement that is um, championing and helping tell a fuller set of stories. Um, and in no small part, I have to imagine, because if so much of the popular narrative comes from stories told in the media, well, then part of the solution has got to be Let's tell a broader, more honest set of stories. So I'm just going to take that clip and play that in every meeting that I go to. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. It is the answer. And then the more stories we create about ourselves, it then creates the pressure Hmm. on media to do more you know, we're helping to shape pop culture and they're responding to things that we're doing. And I think that that's absolutely right. We are the only ones who can tell people who we are and all of the things that we're interested in and why we are human just like everybody else and why we deserve the same things that everyone else does for the exact same reason. Only we can do that to an effective degree because only we know what it's like to be trans. It's very hard for someone who is not trans to actually tell trans stories accurately in a way that is compelling and authentic. It's very hard. So we have to do that. And I think what's great about Gen Z is that there are so many ways that we can reach them with these stories. I was actually talking to the head of the Trevor Project recently that's devoted to keeping LGBTQ alive, centered around mental health and suicide prevention and was saying how they have documented research that shows that kids who see story, uh, let me say young people for the 16-year-olds listening, mm-hmm. that young people who see their stories reflected accurately in the media are several times less likely to commit suicide. So it is essential and vital work. Yeah, so powerful, so powerful. Um Feels like a good place, I think, for us to uh, start to come full circle in our conversation as well. Sitting here in this container, a good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? 
to live a good life is about possibility that originates from you owning yourself, owning your gifts, and bringing them into a world that makes space for you and is receptive. That's an amazing life. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Thomas Page McBee. You'll find a link to Thomas's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.